I think one of the most liberating things that I've found this year as a black person and then specifically as a black woman is no longer lying about my experience. And Oof. there's a lot of freedom that can come from not lying about your experience and also forcing people to take on this burden. For us as believers, it talks about, you know, there are loads that we carry in life. There are burdens. Yeah. And I've heard it described once before as a, a load is like your knapsack. It's what you know, yeah. you yourself, you got to carry, you have to put it on your back. Burden is something that others have to share. But when it comes to oppression, when it comes to kind of the uncomfortable talk specifically about race and specifically about being a black woman, our experience, people don't want to share in that burden with us. But guess what? You're going to share. Come on. <laughs> I'm not carrying this because I'm not supposed to carry this. Body. Come on. Ah, this is why I had you on. Hey, before we get into this episode, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you find any of my content to be encouraging or uplifting, it would mean the world to me if you take a moment and write a review for this podcast wherever you're listening. Not only will it rank better in its category, but it will also help others like you find it. Thank you so much, and let's get back to the show. All right, guys, well, welcome to another episode of Millennials in Ministry. I'm your host, Erin V. Lashley, and today I am privileged to be interviewing Obani Ukuku. She is an attorney. She is a community advocacy consultant and coach. She's a business owner. She's well-known and beloved in the city of Phoenix, and I'm so privileged to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Obani. Well, thank you for having me. Of course, of course. So for those who don't know you, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you grew up? Okay, so like Aaron said, my name is Obani Ukuku. I have lived in the Phoenix area for eight years. I was originally born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, spent uh, most of my life there, and then I moved to Houston for law school. Also, if you're wondering where my name comes from, I'm first generation Nigerian American. So my parents immigrated from Nigeria to the United States in the 70s and have been here ever since and then gave birth to myself as well as my four sisters in somewhere in the kind of like southeastern region of the United States. So I moved out to Phoenix, like I said, eight years ago to practice law. And uh, there's a lot of my story, which I'm sure we'll dive more into in between. Yeah. Um, yeah, in between me coming from Atlanta to Phoenix. Yeah, I love that. And I would love to know, too, just how faith has played a role in your journey and your life and bringing you up into this point. So what's your faith journey been like? Yes. So I came to the faith at an early age. I accepted Christ when I was seven. And I love telling people this story because I feel like it really captures the personal nature of salvation and of faith where I grew up in a church that had great sound doctrinal teaching, awesome, awesome kids ministry people, where they were able to lay out the gospel in a way that was really understandable for me at a young age, and that made me understand who Christ was. So I remember laying in my bed at night one night, and my mom was in her bathroom that she and my dad shared, and she asked me, uh, no, I asked her, excuse me, I said, am I saved because you and daddy are saved? And she said, no, because my parents are very honest people. And <laughs> it was that honesty that really honestly saved, you know, my spiritual life. And because I'd already known about Christ, who he was, what he came to do, I just rolled over in my bed at seven years old and 
And wow. I accepted Christ. I asked him to come into my life to forgive me of my sins and have been journeying with him ever since. Mm, I love that. And how have you seen just like your passion for the Lord and your faith journey um, bleed over into your passion for justice um, up until this point and that leading to you becoming an attorney? Like, what does that look like for you? I think it's really interesting how we talk about how the Lord equips us equips us for whatever it is that we're going to do in the future. But I think sometimes we miss the small equippings and the small equippings mm -hmm. are the equippings that deal with our upbringing, our life, you know, what we've been um, exposed to. I remember once having a supervisor who told me that we have to think about and, and ask ourselves, why has Christ decided to keep me here on earth up in point up until this point in time? Because after, yeah. you know, after we got saved, he could have easily just, you know, taking us up in chariots of fire up to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> but he said that there's a specific reason why we are still here on this earth. And so mm -hmm. the interesting thing is that when he said that to me, it got my mind thinking about something else. And I mentioned earlier that I'm first generation Nigerian American. And it got me thinking of like, oh, wait, so there's a reason. So like if God is that intentional and has a purpose for us, for keeping us here on earth, that means everything else that he does in our life is intentional. And I know it might seem like a huge jump. That's kind of how my mind works. It's just like mm -hmm. all these little snaps gaps, they just start firing away and, and making these connections. And so it made me start to think about uh, what did God equip me with in my own personal life? What experience yeah. have I had? And then specifically dealing with being Nigerian American around that time, I was really dwelling on what does God had for me in that area? If he intentionally made my parents born and raised in Nigeria, come to the States and then have myself and my sisters. And I began right. to really see and understand that I was a bridge and that I was at this mm -hmm. juncture at that time in my life where I began to understand that I was equipped through these cultures that I was both a part of to be mm -hmm. able to act as a bridge for people from in America to Nigeria yeah. and vice versa, but also in a more expansive way. And so that really goes into this whole concept of justice and understanding, mm -hmm. okay, I had this, yeah, I had this special equipping with being Nigerian American, but what other areas in my life has the Lord given me certain passions or given me backgrounds and experiences to be able to act as a bridge between two different communities? And that's, mm -hmm. what, that's what justice is for me. When I was younger, I was around, I think, 14, 13 or 14 years old and I just remember sitting in my homeroom class in middle school and saying to myself I want to be a voice for the voiceless which mm -hmm. ironically was ironic, uh, ironic excuse me for me because you know I was a kid who got bullied I have a lot of other mm -hmm. stuff that you know were some obstacles that I had to overcome in life and so it was just really interesting to think okay this person who seemingly lacks a voice has yeah. this burden has this passion is being called by the Lord to be a voice for arguably herself, you know, mm -hmm. and, and other people as well. But, you know, it was those little things in my life with the passions that he gave me as, as a young child to, you know, what my background is with, or even we'll get into this probably later of just being a public yeah. defender, but all these little, little things that come together and help me realize like, hey, there are multiple ways in which the Lord is calling me to be a bridge because of my background, because of my equipping. Mm. I love that, Obani. And um, one of the things I love most about you 
is you're just so classy and you have so much wisdom that just oozes out of you. And you just start talking about these things that are so a part of your heart and so much a part of your story. And I even posted about this when I first posted about this um, interview with you. It's like the first conversation I have with you is like an hour and 42 minutes long or something like that. And I'm just taking notes because there's so much wisdom in your story and in your background that has led you to becoming a bridge, as you say. And so um, I'm really excited to delve a little bit deeper into this topic of justice with you, because one, I think you're more than qualified um, for this topic for so many different reasons. But also as a black woman, um, I really am becoming more passionate about centering the voices of black women when it comes to this topic of racial justice, because I feel like society hasn't done a great job of that. And I'm, you know, reading the book that I just read, I bring the voices of my people. That's all about that. So it's such a privilege for me to sit here with you. With that being said, I want to talk about justice in the church. And the question is, obviously, the church talks a lot about justice, especially during this time, you know, especially white evangelical churches, they're attempting to talk about justice, you know, even if they're not doing a great job. But with that in mind, what is this place of justice in the church? And even more specifically, what is the place and role of the church in justice within the concept of racism as well? The church has a huge role to play in justice because the church is called to that. Oftentimes when we are in, it is typically some of these white evangelical spaces, we hear gospel, we hear justice. And so mm. more recently I've begun to see different churches try, try to like merge the two because for some reason, and I mean, it may just be the way in America that we operate, like things are very compartmentalized. The two mm. have become separate, but the two are not separate. The two are one. Justice is within the gospel. That is what yeah. Christ came to do. It's not, and justice doesn't mean what we all think of justice as. Oftentimes we think about, and this does include justice, but oftentimes we think about justice just um, from a legal perspective. And I know you mentioned it on, on your uh, page on Instagram, but I'll also mention it again of like, and I, which I didn't go into deep detail with you about even in our first conversation is that I'm a mm -hmm. former public defender. I practice in juvenile court as well as criminal court. And I spent most of the time in juvenile court representing parents who had had their children taken away by the Department of Child Safety. Now, wow. God, as I mentioned before, gave me this heart for justice and, and gave me this ability to be able to meet and, and maybe have relationships with people that other people won't necessarily have relationships or wouldn't have relationships with. However, even with me going into that space of public defense, having the type of heart that I did, there's always an expansion that the Lord has to do. So I came into public defense with this idea of this is how justice looks like. Uh, by the time I ended up leaving public defense, God showed me my form of justice and oftentimes humans form of justice is very limited and God's justice that he's talking about is far more expansive than what our, honestly our minds can comprehend. But we still mm -hmm. work towards understanding this bigger concept of justice. So when you take that, when you take a more expansive view of justice and then place it back into the church, you begin to understand that what Christ did for us was like bringing I don't want to use the word like bringing some form of justice because he gave us something, you know, that we did not deserve, but like yeah. all of his actions kind of centered around that idea of sitting with the least of us, of, um, you know, loving on those who we normally would not love on, you know, speaking yeah. truth, bringing peace, and then exploding our minds in a sense of like, what does peace, what does justice look like? So when we look at the example of Christ's life, 
we understand that that church and gospel are not separate from justice. There's, you know, one and the same. What is what's it say in the book of Isaiah that that he came mm -hmm. to establish his kingdom? Yeah. You know, peace, righteousness, justice, these things are all included. So then what does that mean for the church? Well, that means that the church has a specific role and duty to not just take part in things that deal with justice and specifically racial justice, but we should be leading the forefront. Because oftentimes mm. in church, we talk about, you know, the church needs to lead the charge. The church needs to lead the charge. Well, what does, what does that mean? And are yeah. we actually leading the charge? Right, right. And what do you think about, because you actually sent me a post about this, which totally changed the way that I was talking about racial reconciliation or justice in general in my own journey of learning, which I so appreciate. But you're talking about how let us not talk about racial reconciliation or justice without also talking about white supremacy. And can you talk about how those two things coincide and the importance of realizing that you can't have justice without acknowledging what white supremacy is and that it can be difficult, especially in church settings, um, because like, you know, most church settings are somehow rooted in white evangelicalism um, in today's Western world. But I just want to get your thoughts on that and if you could speak into that a little bit. Oh, man, the history is deep. I think the first thing that is important for us to state up front is that when we say white supremacy, we are not attacking anybody. And the we is not like black people are not attacking. It means collectively speaking, anybody who uses this word white supremacy, they're not mm -hmm. waging a war on anybody on the basis of their skin color. It's an understanding of a system that's been in place, honestly, since the inception of the United States that mm -hmm. is structured in such a way that it has kept certain people at the bottom while keeping others at the top. And it, it extends just past what people think about like skin color. As I mentioned mm. before, like it's this system, it's a mind frame, it's what do we believe as normal? What do we believe as standard? And then subjecting everybody else who could be of different cultures or different backgrounds to what this standard is, or even subjecting people who are of the majority to this standard and to this understanding of what we consider normal now yeah yeah and you also introduced this concept to me too about <laughs> it is very possible for people of color to be upholding the pillars of white supremacy too and talk about that a little bit and your thoughts there because i thought that that was quite fascinating and so true but never really was introduced to the thought until we started conversing about it so speak on that for me absolutely so you have uh, two kind of parallel things. There's white supremacy and then there's this concept that people call whiteness. I don't want to get too deep into all of those. And definitely, I always tell people Google is your friend. So you can't go, <laughs> you can't go research these things. But it goes back to what I was saying about the system of white supremacy and it being defined as the norm or the standard. So there are certain things that are, that are considered the norm in America that actually deal with that system and may deal only with one specific cultural group. So mm -hmm. if you end up finding yourself subscribing to some of those behaviors, some of those belief systems, and it's not really belief systems or behaviors that you normally would have yourself, you know, you could yeah. be subscribing or, or um, upholding this system. And I'm trying to think of like a I didn't know we were going that deep into that today, but think of like <laughs> okay. a, um, an example. One of the kind of generic examples that that people give is like this um, concept of productivity, 
And you know, mm -hmm. America's known as, there's two things America's known for, individualism and go, 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 go. And so mm -hmm. we always think about like, that's normal, that's normal. But is that normal for everybody? Or mm -hmm. is that normal for the system that we have in place that sometimes may take characteristics more from one particular cultural group, specifically mm -hmm. like individualism. As I mentioned, my family is originally from Nigeria. Nigeria is not an individualistic society. You think about the community, you think about the family, you think about the whole. And it's not to say that these things are not thought about in America, but where we make our decisions and how we move mm -hmm. and how we function, how we operate in life are very different because on mm -hmm. one end of the spectrum, you have maybe one culture that's doing things more from what's best for me and then, and then what's best for, you know, these other people versus other cultures that are like, we think about the whole first and then I come in there at some point in time. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm not saying one is better than the other or the other's worse, worse than one, but that's just an example of like for me, if I start to subscribe to this system of, or this concept of like, I need to think about myself first. It's all about yeah. me. I'm not thinking about the community. In a sense, I'm really just, I'm really taking off one part of me and building into and following after this other system. That like I said, yeah. not always in, in, in certain situations, not always good or always bad, but mm -hmm. that's just one example of how you know, we have things that are considered normal, um, the norm, let me not say normal, the norm, yeah. but it's actually not the norm for everybody. Hey there, just taking a quick break to let you know that I've recently started a podcast Patreon, which means for as low as $5 a month, you can learn with me. We will be reading books together about justice, equality, culture, and have conversations virtually with the authors of these books. So you can expect bonus content, exclusive interviews, and learn with me alongside a like-minded community. Just visit AaronVLashley.com to join or click the link in my bio on any of my social media platforms. Now let's get back to this show yeah yeah that's really good obani and my sister and i were just talking about um individualism a little bit not too long ago and one thing that's really interesting like when you think about building beloved community um or building a, a reimagining what community would look like if white supremacy wasn't the norm you know what it looks like is if we're going to dismantle white supremacy we have to start thinking about others and not thinking about ourselves and doing things that benefit just ourselves and sometimes that means that i'm going to choose something that benefits you because it's i don't want to choose something that's harmful to you even though i might be at a loss and i think that in white evangelical spaces that's a concept that we don't talk about enough of is that it's almost foreign to when it comes to voting to think about voting in a way that is best for the most marginalized instead of what benefits you as an individual um, and then leading into it from that question going into the next question i have for you is when it comes to voting um i want to ask how would you encourage others to reimagine the way that they approach voting I want to back up and I, because I think I might have bypassed one of your questions, which definitely tie into reimagining voting, specifically for mm -hmm. people who are believers. And it's a the church. So church oftentimes, like if you grew up in church and even if you're new to church, too, you may have heard people in church say, you know, we are in the world. We're not of the world. But I think mm -hmm. one thing that 2020 has kind of taught us is that 
that scripture is 100% true. But are there ideas and beliefs and patterns and behaviors we have in our life that are actually of the world, but we don't acknowledge that they're actually of the world? Wow. And I definitely think we see that within the church is that, you know, we have, you know, we so adamantly want to not be of the world that we can't even acknowledge some of the ideology that exists in the church is actually of the world. And mm. understanding how we can use some of the tools that exist in the world without becoming, you know, of the world. We can, we can use these tools that exist in the world to begin to dismantle these ideologies and these belief systems and these systems. Because if we were to go back to white supremacy, this thing has deep roots. Like, mm -hmm. It, it has it just has deep roots that have um put itself in many different areas within our country and within our world and so unless we unless and until we begin to understand the roots that is taken in different places and how it's used those some of these institutions to uphold these systems you know we're not going to be able to dismantle or move past it like some people like mm -hmm. to say and really begin to do the healing work that's necessary. So just to circle back, you know, it's necessary when we're reimagining voting, reimagining anything, talking about how do we bring healing within the church, that mm -hmm. we begin not be so defensive as the as as the church and say, yeah. you know, we, we got to be different from the world. But understanding that we need to understand what in our mind is of the world so that yeah. we can deal with that and truly be in the world and not of it. Mm -hmm. So then mm. going to voting, I think that ties directly into voting, is that mm. somehow in the grand scheme of life, we've gotten deceived as believers as thinking that these people are believers, these people are not believers, you know, you have to vote this way, you have to vote that way. And that's just, yeah. that, it's just so, so very narrow-minded, you know? Mm. Um, it's, just, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily narrow-minded and it doesn't yeah. really it doesn't really appreciate the complex nature of the world that we live in and the complex nature of doing justice work and the complex nature of uh, mm. actually being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. You yeah. know, what in Christ's life was just completely simple. Mm. You know, he came and he challenged people. Pharisees didn't understand what he was talking about. You know, yeah. sometimes disciples were confused. <laughs> yeah. You know, confused, didn't really yeah. understand it. And so, like, for us as believers to try to water down uh, mm. politics, water down voting to, or reduce voting or reduce politics to this, you know, to vote along this party line means that, you know, you're standing for Christ. To vote along this party means you're not standing for Christ. It's completely foolish. So yeah. to, like to reimagine voting, it's um it's it's gonna it's gonna take the work that many of us didn't want to do in 2020, which God forced us to do, is to yeah. sit down, is to really think, is to really get downright dirty and ugly with ourselves to find out our own biases, our own beliefs, to um, line up those teachings, like Paul says, take every thought captive, and then you know you're matching it against what is the actual truth of Jesus mm -hmm. Christ. It's it's going to take you having to do some inward work to understand your belief system, then match it up with what the scripture says, and then arrive at a conclusion that's going to lead you to who you believe that the Lord is calling you to vote for. That's good. That's really good. <laughs> you leave me speechless sometimes, buddy. I'm like, yeah, that's really, really good. 
Um, I also want to ask you about Black women in the world. Obviously, we all know what happened with Breonna Taylor's case. Mm -hmm. And um, for me personally, it was disheartening for so many different reasons. And, you know, because I am her, she is me, you know, I'm a black woman, you know, and um, for her life to not be worth bringing justice or seeing justice, um, it just doesn't make me feel like safe or valued in society. Um, And so I just want to ask you, what is your encouragement for black women in light of knowing what's happened with Breonna Taylor, knowing how, systemically black women are seen in society and in the world how would you encourage black women to live um, and function in the world um, just from your perspective and vantage point you know it's difficult it's difficult waking up in not just the country in a world where it's very apparent that your life is not valued and you know there's no way to sugarcoat it. I think sometimes the best encouragement that we can receive in life is by first acknowledging what the truth is and then figuring out what do we need to care for ourselves and, you know, what are the communities that we can surround ourselves in to be able to feel uplifted, to be uplifted and to continue to do the work that the Lord has called us to. Uh, With Breonna Taylor's case, you, like you said it, you, you said it, and I think it's something that black women feel not i think i know every black woman i've spoken to myself as a black woman it's something that hits very much to the core uh, of who we are and and how we feel in this country and yeah to not feel safe to not feel protected and to actually not just feel like that but have that as a reality is something that you can't really ever explain or put into words I think mm-hmm. as black women, the biggest thing that we have to do is one, acknowledge the hurt, acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the wrongness and yeah. have that willingness and that, you know, and that push to be able to stand up for ourselves, even in the midst of, of hardship, mm-hmm. you know, like it's very hard to carry. It's very hard to carry everything on your back. And I know some of your viewers, you, you definitely have a diverse audience for your viewers. So mm-hmm. I want to, kind of go in a little bit more depth of what I'm talking about. Cause I, I know you understand completely. I'm pretty sure any other black woman yeah. watching <laughs> understands this is that black women are told to be strong. And now being strong is not looked at as a good thing. Actually, we yeah. have to look at what is being conveyed to us when we're told to be strong, where, mm-hmm. you know, black women and white women, in this world, specifically in America, because that's, that's, this is the society that I live in and that I was raised in, you know, both as women, we, we have a fight. We have a fight of, mm-hmm. against oppression. But as many people have spoken about in 2020, our fights definitely look different. And so mm-hmm. sometimes like the tool for oppression for white women is tell you that you're weak, treat you that you're weak, treat you as though you're weak so that we can keep you down. Now, but for black women, it's kind of double where it's mm. a, we're not going to treat you as you're weak. We think you're still less than, we're not going to treat you as though you're weak, but we're going to take a spin on the word strong. And we're going to mm-hmm. tell you you're strong so that we can dump all these things on you. But because you're strong, you don't need the protection that the Ooh. other women need. You don't need someone else to stand up for you like other women may get in certain situations. So, you know, that word strong is a very colored word. 
it doesn't mm -hmm. mean maybe what some people think it means in terms of like you know you can do anything in this world in this world i mean it can yeah. that, but oftentimes when it's spoken about in the context of you know black women in oppression it's really a tool to keep us down to keep yeah. us carrying all this weight without having somebody else share in our burden so as yeah. a black woman one of the things that's really important for us to do is find like-minded community and then even with community that's not like-minded you know being able to speak up and just yeah. because somebody's telling you that you know that you are strong you need to keep pushing doesn't mean you have to sit there and you have to listen mm. to it yep and so i think one of the most liberating things that i found this year as a black person and then specifically as a black woman is no longer lying about my experience. And Oof. there's a lot of freedom that can come from not lying about your experience and also forcing people to take on this burden. Cuz in Galatians 6, I think it's Galatians 5 or Galatians 6 it talks about for us as believers it talks about, you know, there are loads that we carry in life, there are burdens. Yeah. And I've heard it described once before as a, a load is like your knapsack. It's what you know, yeah. you yourself, you got to carry, you have to put it on your back. Burden is something that others have to share. But when it comes to oppression, when it comes to kind of the uncomfortable talk specifically about race and specifically about being a black woman, our experience, people don't want to share in that burden with us. But guess what? You're going to share. Come on. <laughs> I'm not carrying this because I'm not supposed to carry this by. Come on. <laughs> Ah, this is why I had you on. Yes, Obani. Yes. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. If you had more to say, go for it. I just had to cheer you right there. You know, no, and that's pretty much it. And it ties yeah. back into kind of the, the greater fight that we have as women of taking up space. As black women, taking up space specifically means I'm not going to shy back from my uncomfortable experiences and speaking that to you because it makes you uncomfortable. And if you are a Christian, you best believe we Shoo! all we all gonna share in this because that's yeah. what Christ calls us to. That is just it's so powerful, and I, I know I've mentioned this book several times now. But in the I bring the voices of my people. The number one lesson that I walk away from is she talks specifically about that, about the start of healing and liberation for people of color, specifically women of color, is confrontational truth telling, because it forces me to acknowledge that you you white supremacy and this, those systems are oppressing me, and it also forces people that uphold white supremacy to acknowledge their oppressiveness and deal with it. So it's the, the, the beginning, like the start of true healing and liberation is tell the truth. So me and my sister were talking about it the other day. It's like, our phrase now is, girl, you better tell the truth. You better say the truth. And because you're going to bear this burden <laughs> and we all going to get free. You know what I mean? Like that is, that is it. And so thank you so much for speaking so much truth. Um, everything you said, I just resonate with, and it's just because it, it's liberating to hear people tell the truth. So, Obani, thank you for that. And the final question I have for you is I would love for you to talk a bit more about the business that you have and the consulting and coaching that you do. I'm really excited. I'm personally going to be um, being coached by Obani coming up in January, and I'm really excited about that. So just talk about your program, what you do, and how people can get involved with you. I want to give you space for that. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. And you are amazing, Erin. So 
you know, I'm, I'm so much looking forward to what the Lord has in store for you in the next couple of years and then beyond. And it is my honor and my pleasure to be able to walk with you in that journey. As Aaron mentioned, I have a, I just, so I just left my last position that I was in back in June where I went from public defender, then I was working within the church setting, and then now I've transitioned out. And I have my own consulting and coaching firm. And I'm practicing law a little bit, doing some court appointment work, because I, I like to still, I keep my, my hand and my foot in the community and have a pulse on a, a communities and populations that are historically disenfranchised and marginalized. So my coaching and consulting program is centered around acting as a bridge where I help businesses, faith-based organizations, and leaders uh, go into the community, understand their skill sets, understand their personal resources, and um, give them the ability to maximize on their resources as well as what the skill set that they can offer the community and uh, pair them within, like pair them with different community organizations or different initiatives within the community to be able to help develop the community more. So within, mm -hmm. specifically within this consulting firm, I, like I, I deal with the community and I help, I help these organizations find and identify communities that they can be of service for if, if they don't have one already, if they do have one, great. But I teach them how to be able to identify what the needs are of the community by speaking with community members and then by mm -hmm. understanding what resources that they already have where you don't have to go create, create the wheel. You can use what is already within your own system and what you are strong with and strong at and be able to pair that with the community. And then with my coaching program, I do something a little bit similar as well to where I, I coach people on how to understand their value to the community and do a little introspection as well as understanding the community in which they live, work, and they also serve, and then how to pair like their skill sets, their values with the needs of the community and find their best fit within the community. And then I like to talk a lot, if you couldn't guess, and, and I like to... <laughs> Like within that coaching, within the, um, consulting, I also give some of my own background, knowledge and expertise of what worked, what didn't work when I was helping a church in downtown Phoenix build their justice and care ministry. And then also, you know, what I learned as a public defender for six years within the greater Phoenix area. And I don't work with just people in Phoenix. I work nationwide. I've been in contact with some churches, working with other organizations, work with nonprofits in other states just giving them the resources and the skill sets to be able to do the work of empowering the community that we're all placed in. That's awesome. That's so awesome. So if people want to take the next step with you and if they want to get in touch with you or in contact with you, what's the best way for them to say, Hey, Obani, I want to work with you. So you can reach me on this Instagram handle that I know Aaron will tag because my name it is foreign, so so if I but it's beautiful. You, thank you. I love my name. I love where I come yeah. from. I love my background. I, love it too. I do understand that people mix up letters in my name for some odd reason, time and time again. So the easiest way to find me is with my Instagram handle that Aaron will tag in this in this IG live. It's at Obani underscore Agendu, and then you can just DM me, and I can send you the rest of my contact information. I love it. Well, Obani, thank you so much for your time and doing this interview with me. It's such a privilege. Like, 
such great truth telling here. And I'm just so blessed to know you and continue to build a relationship with you um, here in the city of Phoenix. And I just celebrate you. I champion you. I'm for you. I'm going to market you like I believe in you and what you're doing. And so um, just thank you so much. And I'll definitely be talking with you again soon. Thank you so much, Aaron. You, you take care.